You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Alexander Chi. Hello, could I please speak with Alexander Chi? This is. Hello, Alexander, how are you? I'm doing okay, how are you? I am very well. What am I interrupting for the moment? Where are you? <laughs> you like that question? I'm in Florence, Italy, um, in a little apartment on the... Uh, it's called Via del Pandolfini. Um, and it's... Uh, it's sort of in the. It's in the center of the the, the kind of the, the mix of tourist and student restaurants and that kind of. It's a. It's a little more social than I might like, but I like it. You're leading the life I I talk about. <laughs> in Florence, well, what 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 are you doing? What are you doing in Florence? What takes you there? I, I'm teaching at the NYU uh, Creative Writing Program in Florence. Uh, it's a summer program. It's uh, four weeks in Italy at uh, Villa La Pietra, which is a wonderful old, um, I think it's a, I believe it was built by the Medici's uh, money finance guy. I'm not being super articulate about that, but it's a gorgeous 60-acre property with um, several villas, and it's a fantastic place to teach creative writing for the summer. Is this the first time you, you do something like this in Italy? It's my third time, actually. So, I'm, I've been quite fortunate to teach these three years there. What What are you teaching, and, and in what way teaching in Italy is different than teaching elsewhere? teaching uh, fiction technique, I guess you could say, um, and I, it's a, it's a course on techniques in fiction that is taught by uh, reading and uh, close to reading in particular, using the text that we read as examples of a kind for problem solving in writing fiction. And so in the past two years in particular, I've been teaching Italian fiction in translation from uh, from the mid-century, uh, mid-20th century to the present. Who are some of your favorite? Well, I really enjoy teaching uh, Alberto Moravia, uh, and I enjoy teaching uh, Giorgio Bassani, and... And in particular, uh, Natalia Ginsburg. For whom we, we, we truly share a passion. Um, I, I, um, I love her, her fiction and I love, you know, what I particularly adore of uh, Natalia Ginsburg is a small little book she wrote called The Little Virtues. Yes, thank you. You, you know it. It's, uh, I do. I, I, uh, I referred to it when I was working on my essay collection 
the last year and a half, and uh, as a kind of not quite a model, but as a as a meditation, I guess I would say it was one of the books I thought about quite a bit as I wrote this one. I, I I wonder how you you would react to to these lines that come from the little virtues, actually from the first few lines of the essay itself called The Little Virtues, which I'd, I'd love to read out loud, where she says, Natalia Ginsburg writes, as far as the education of children is concerned, I think they should be taught not the little virtues, but the great ones, not thrift, but generosity, and an indifference to money, not caution, but courage, and a contempt for danger, not shrewdness, but frankness, and a love of truth, not tact, but love for one's neighbor and self-denial, not a desire for success, but a desire to be and to know. Mm, yeah, that's, uh, that's a particularly beautiful part of that book. And, you know, I think it's, she has this wonderful direct, I suppose it's the frankness that she talks about. Yes. She, she lived, I think, in that frankness and in that, that same generosity. It's interesting to, it's interesting to hear her say that about money, I guess, I suppose it's, her mission is so much about people's struggles with money and, uh, and the kind of, kind of cruelties that can can pile up when money is short and what what you know what i truly love is that that is the beginning of the essay the beginning of the essay begins with as far as the education of children is concerned as if we began right in medias res in the middle of it all there's no introduction she immediately gets to the point. Yes, it's a... I, I like the introduction also. She talks about how all of these essays are written for one person in particular who she doesn't identify. That's right. Um, and it's such a lovely, intimate quality that results as you read the rest of the book, a kind of... Uh, you know, it, it makes sense that it sounds as if she's talking to somebody who already knows what she's talking about, uh, because in a sense, I think she does, you know, is talking to that person. Why does that speak to you in particular? I, I suppose I like the way that it disposes of a certain lens, you know, I think, or a certain distance. People have asked me a lot this year a question that I've never really thought about in the same way, which is, you know, who is your audience? Who do you, who do you write for? And, you know, there's a, there's a writer, Blanche McCreary Boyd, who I like quite a bit, whose, uh, newest novel, the first one in 20 years, just came out this May, uh, The Tomb of the Unknown Racist. And well, I have to read that. Uh, I don't. I don't know it. And she, and she said to me, like back in 1988, I believe, she said, uh, "You know, write to the smartest person you know." 
And this that rang that rang true for me then, and it was what I thought of when I read that in Ginsburg's introduction to the essays. You know, I, I there's so many passages in How to Write an Autobiographical Novel that I I love. One of them. Thank you. You're very welcome, but one of them, I, and I, I want to talk about your mentors, particularly now that you are in Italy probably doing what was done to you, mentoring others to have the, the stamina uh, and the endurance to live a writerly life. But there's one line uh, of Deborah Eisenberg that I, I adore and which in a way resonated with me, particularly as I was thinking that I would bring up Natalia Ginsburg to you, um, where she says, you meet people in your family you'd never run into otherwise. <laughs> oh, I love that laugh. <laughs> oh, it's good. Uh, it's a, yeah, that is, that is such a great, What did I do to deserve this? Right, who are these people? Um, uh, and in, in a way, you know, w w when you just said that, it made me think of um, what it must mean that I can only imagine to write, where you must ask yourself that question as well. Who are these people? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I th you know, I think one thing that has really been very moving to me about uh, about the last uh, six weeks or so since the new essay collection came out is um, is the intensity of some of the connections that people have made to the book and which I, I don't know that I was prepared for because I don't know that I, I don't know that you could prepare for it right you know? I think that like one always hopes that people will identify strongly with what you write but you certainly could never count on it, and uh, and so the, the very the very uh, different kinds of people who have been connecting to it is what that makes me think of, I suppose. You know, one of the I, I suppose one of the things I, I I wish to ask you at this moment, given that you you are in in Italy and that you are in Florence, is what what the feeling is for you being in in Italy looking at um the United States and thinking about you know the predicament we might find ourselves in now and how this distance might make you look differently at the place where you usually live mm. it's been on my mind pretty much uh since I arrived and it's it's even you know, part of why I I teach these mid-century Italian writers is that I'm I'm looking at writers who endured fascism in, in Italy and thinking of you know how did they how did they keep writing what did they write about how did they write about their time and uh, trying to draw insight and and strength from that. But I came across it very differently, I suppose, when I went to 
the show that they have up now at the Palazzo Strozzi. We, we went with the students, uh, all of us in the program. And it's a very inspiring show on the protest art, uh, visual art that was made starting in the, in the 40s and 50s and continuing uh, past that. It gave a, an interesting context, too, to some of the contemporary art I'm seeing now from Italian artists. And, you know, the, the ways in which, I, you know, the, the, the curator who showed it to us said something to the effect of, like, you know, the more painterly uh, style before this, figurative style before this, uh, you know, attempted to represent beauty to the to the viewer, but these works try to do something more than that. And I, I found that very interesting as an idea for for what one wants art to do. And one 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 does want art to do something. I mean, you you write of it. I think many people have remarked on on this particular passage. Why not repeat it again? Because I think it is so good where you say the story of your life described will not describe how you came to think about your life or yourself, nor describe any of what you learned. This is what fiction can do. I think it is even what fiction is for. Thank you. Yeah, it's... You're welcome. You wrote it. <laughs> you wrote it. And, and, and in a way, it's, it's, I, I, I read in it nearly marching orders for the, um, um, the ambition and aspiration of the best in fiction and probably the best in fiction that you read that made you want to write this and made you want to believe in it so strongly. I think that what you can do with a piece of fiction is you can look past yourself, past the moment, into the whole crazy scheme that has built up around the lives of your characters that you call a culture and a government and a history, and you can see deeply, hopefully, into it and into how you have you have been shaped and the people around you have been shaped by things that you may never have even guessed at and i think that's what i'm reaching for now as i struggle to think about what exactly you know what is the how does one respond how does one respond meaningfully to what seems like a, a truly desperate political crisis around the way the country is treating Immigrants who are really guilty of nothing more than a misdemeanor and, uh, and what a terrifying, uh, series of, of next steps they might have planned. How can one respond? I think, you know, the, the thing that I'm trying to remind people of in general in my life is uh, is that the powerlessness that we feel when we read something like this is largely illusory I think that it's a and even that it's it's what they 
if you allow it to take root in your life, it becomes a gift to these horrible people. And that, you know, the thing that you always have to do is to just keep rejecting that feeling of powerlessness and to keep remembering the, the you know, that protests, uh, voting, uh, giving of your time and energy to organizations, uh, addressing your legislators, holding them accountable, uh, holding yourself accountable to responding to the situation, and always keeping that generosity you know, that Ginsburg talked about, which I think she she knows so well from perhaps from having lived through these terrible times in Italy that were happening back then. That's right. That's right. And it's, uh, you know, um, I happen to have the, the, the great privilege in my life um, of knowing her son, uh, Carlo Ginsburg, uh, fairly well, and she she transmitted that uh, that generosity and that true openness and appetite uh, to her son, who's this magnificent historian, um, who you probably know, and and I I think that it's particularly important given that the essay that I was quoting from is about the education of children. And she brought up, at least one of her sons who she brought up, was brought up with that extraordinary generosity and and openness, um, which is exactly the, the contrary, one might say, of what is what is happening so often now, which is a close-mindedness. Uh, which you, you you were referring to in some way when you were bringing up two words which I heard very loudly. Um, one is an obsession with with what is happening happening now at this moment with immigration, and another obsession which you only mentioned as a word, but I imagine it must occupy you somewhat, is the word fascism. Yeah, it does. Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. No, I think that uh, one thing that has been really useful to remember at this time is that fascism often begins in the language. Uh... You know, the, today we're seeing the news reports of the of the of the holding areas that they have created the these kinds of detention centers uh, for children camps for children and uh, and the kind the awful demonstrations that are inside them with uh, you know Trump's cartoon image. Um, and the the slogan, you know, sometimes by losing a battle, you find a new way to win the war, and it's it's just really chilling because it sounds actually like you know the Arbeit macht frei that was written in Auschwitz. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's really it's gruesome. You know, they call it Casa Padre, and this is where they're keeping. Children who've been taken from their parents—it's just—it's like a disgusting insult 
you know as you as you were talking about fascism beginning often in language i was reminded of a of a passage i quoted back to rebecca solnit when i had her on a on a phone call from paul she wrote a incredible piece um if you if you have not read it do uh, you'll find it very easily online um in the guardian called call climate change what it is colon violence and she ends the essay with this line climate change is global scale violence against places and species as well as against human beings once we call it by name we can start having a real conversation about our priorities and values because the revolt against brutality begins with a revolt against the language that hides that brutality but so um yeah that's definitely dead on and it's uh you know i was i was thinking about this because there is a student who here who actually at a reading asked the question you know about like the question was i'm struggling to remember it exactly but it was approximately about working on climate climate change and fiction and like was that was that even something that she should be trying to do and i thought about how different it would be if if in the stories that i was reading uh growing up i saw more of that right it was happening when i was growing up right and how how often you know realist fiction in the united states has has not addressed that kind of a reality um how often people will say things like the weather is so weird when actually it's something else that's happening it's this violence that she's talking about and you know the the way that we go about talking about these things and the way we tell stories about it all that is linked and if the if the ways that we tell stories are inadequate to the task of representing what is happening to us then we're really lost you know and and you know what what strikes me particularly in the last comment you just made in the last sentence we're really lost is that writers in a way it seems to to me to you imply can if they address things in the proper way offer us a road map Um, 
danger of going numb at this moment in our history in the United States. And and where where is that piece? I didn't catch that. Uh, it just appeared on Slate, and uh, it's basically about the kind of the overwhelming amount of horror that the Trump administration is creating in just about every way. You know, whether it's every minute the extraordinary corruption or the abject mishandling of foreign affairs or uh you know the attempt at obstruction of justice and the Mueller investigation um or these assaults on immigrants uh you know that collectively it's been uh horrific and you know it's by design like Jeff Sessions when he was entering the Trump administration designed a you know a first 100 days of shock and awe in which you know this uh new government which won by a minority and with a minority of support uh was essentially treating the majority of the United States as a hostile country to attack and conquer um and that's what they're still doing they're trying to trying to make us forget that we are a majority and that uh and that that government that he has uh is a problem for the way that it doesn't represent us do i still have you there yes i do that's i i i i um I'm 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 struck by the I'll, I'll have to read that essay, but I'm struck by this notion of of numbness because, as I I was trying to express a little bit earlier, is that it seems that there's a moral imperative in the way you talk about literature, um, that if the words are given, somehow a consciousness is raised. And if you grew up without the fiction that described properly or even addressed properly, let's say, an issue like climate change, um, you may not be sensitive to it and you may not be able to express it in the right words and you may not be able to act in the right words, in the right way. So that in, in, in effect, actually, proper language creates in us a proper possibility of responding effectively. I, I think so, because it allows us to it allows us to articulate these things that otherwise feel inarticulate. Who was some of the you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your mentors because they feature I mean they feature quite prominently in how to write an autobiographical novel. And I'm thinking in particular of somebody whose birthday it is today, John Edgar Wideman. But, and I, of course I mentioned Deborah Eisenberg, but there have been others and they may have helped you precisely with, with what we're talking about now is finding the right words and finding the right way of approaching some of the, the obsessions or interests you may have, including the one of how to write, how to write an autobiography, how to write, how to write altogether, which is something I suspect you're trying to teach others to do now in Florence. Yeah, 
you know, Deborah Eisenberg certainly was someone who, you know, she, she and Molly Sean would, for example, you know, uh, constantly be a kind of example to me of a sort of vigorous political engagement through language and storytelling. Um, uh, other, some of the, some of the other role models I've had who, in the collection, for example, would be uh, the poet and translator Beatrice, uh, who um, was a teacher of mine in New York City in the in the late '80s, early '90s, and uh, and then also uh, you know Anne Christine Dedeski, who's new. Uh, memoir just came out, The Pox Lover, about her time as an AIDS activist and AIDS journalist, uh, during the worst years of early years of the epidemic. Um, I, I, I was talking about this with the students actually yesterday where, you know, I was asking them how many of them had ever written about misogyny in their stories. Wow. Never written a story about misogyny. Hmm. And then, after they answered that question, I then asked them, how do you write a story without misogyny? Can you write a story without misogyny? Doesn't every story, in a sense, have to include misogyny? Like, and asking them also, this is idea of, like, the social problem literature that is somehow separate from other kinds of literature that I'm trying to break down for them so that they can see that they're not um, that they should feel free whenever they want to address whatever they want, you know, but also that that excluding something is making a choice to, in a sense, also silence it. There is a, a, a line by, by Thomas Mann that, that haunts me, um, and I wonder if it holds true for you at all. Um he says, a writer is a person for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. <laughs> I, I love your, I love, by the way, I love your reactions to, to many of these moments, which is the first reaction, which is visceral, which I think is important to you, is laughter. Laughter is important to me, yes. Um, and visceral reaction is important. <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of the hardship, you know, but I think also part of the hardship is grappling with 
grappling with things that have perhaps never been connected before uh, and feeling often, you know, as if you're, as if you're doing something that ranges anything from the impractical to the unwanted to the dangerous, you know. I, I love this passage in, in How to Write an Autobiographical Novel where you say, I wanted to write a novel that would take a reader by the collar and run, and yet I was drawn to writing stories in which nothing happened. Yeah, it was, uh, that was the challenge that I was facing down as I was trying to write my first novel, which was trying to undo what turned out to be a kind of programming that I had created in myself hmm. when confronting trauma as a child and, and learning to, learning to, to, to imagine speaking and doing as a way of creating safety instead of silence and action. I wonder if you, you know, in closing in our conversation now, you, you might enjoy reading something. Sure. I, I would love to. I would love you to. Anything of your choice. I'm going to read from My Parade, which is... Uh, which is my essay about getting an MFA. Yes. And what I, what I think about it. One common complaint about workshops is that the people who take them end up in some way alike, and that the class enforces this alikeness in one another's writing in the workshop. But that was never what I experienced. Instead, I think of a great line from one of Deborah Eisenberg's short stories. You meet people in your family you've never run into otherwise. It's true of families and true of workshops also. You meet people there you'd never otherwise meet, much less show your work to, and you listen to them talk about your story or your novel. These are not your ideal readers per se, but they are ideal in that you can never choose your readers in life, and this is a good way to get used to it. Listening to their critiques forces you past the limits of your imagination, and for this reason, also past the limits of your sympathies. And in doing so, it takes you past the limits of what you can reach for in your work on your own. Fiction writers' work is limited by their sense of reality, and workshop after workshop blew that open for me through the way these conversations expose me to other people's realities. I will never forget the classmate who said to me in workshop about one of my stories, why should I care about the lives of these bitchy queens? It angered me. But I asked myself whether or not I had failed my characters if my story hadn't made them matter to someone disinclined to like or listen to them, someone like him. A vow formed in my mind that day as I listened to him, which has lasted my whole career. I will make you care. Alexander Chi, thank you so much for, for taking my, my call. I hope you, you continue to enjoy Florence and I, I hope and trust and I feel I know that our paths will cross again. Um, Paul, thank you so much for calling. Uh, it's been a pleasure to think about these things with you. Absolute possibility.
Until soon. Take care and, in, and enjoy Italy. Thank you. I will. Bye-bye. Bye.